0: To Ephesians chapter 6. Four friends decided to go mountain climbing one weekend, and in the middle of their climb, one fellow slipped over a cliff, dropped about 60 feet, and landed with a thud on the ledge below. The other three, hoping to rescue him, yelled, Joe, are you okay? And he said, I'm alive, but I think I broke both my arms. And they said, well, just lie still. We'll toss you a rope and pull you up. A couple minutes after dropping one end of the rope, they started tugging and grunting together, working feverishly to pull their wounded companion to safety. And when they had him about three-fourths of the way up, they suddenly remembered that he had said he had broken both of his arms. Joe, if you broke both your arms, how in the world are you hanging on? And Joe said, with my teeth. If you're here as a parent this morning, you can probably relate to Joe. Because there are times when you feel like you have two broken arms and you're hanging on by the skin of your teeth. That's a pretty apt description of the family today. I think that sense comes from within because oftentimes we feel inadequate. Parenting is probably the most important job we will ever do and the one for which we feel least prepared. And most of our training is on-the-job training by trial and error. And oftentimes we feel like we're parenting by the seat of our pants. But not only that, that, that feeling also comes from without because we feel like we're under attack. And rightly so. Because the environment we live in is not conducive to healthy families. In their 1989 Convention of the Child, the United Nations came up with a treaty for the rights of children... It's been signed by 140 nations. The United States is among two dozen who have not signed it. And among the 54 points in the charter is this one, quote, "...to protect children from all forms of discrimination or punishment on the basis of the status, activities, expressed opinions, or beliefs of the parents." Now, there's a document that, if ratified, would carry the weight of international law stating that a parent cannot punish his child. It's a tough environment in which to raise families. The family is hanging by the skin of its teeth, and a fall would be devastating. Writing in the Stanford University Observer, Dr. Albert Siegel warned... When it comes to rearing children, every society is only 20 years away from barbarism. 20 years is all we have to accomplish the task of civilizing the infants who are born into our midst each year. The infant is totally ignorant about democracy and civil liberties, respect, decency, honesty, customs, conventions, and all manners. The barbarian must be tamed if civilization is to survive." And we're beginning to see the alarming evidences that are proving him right. The crime rate among teenagers has tripled in the last 20 years. According to the Department of Justice, 100,000 school children carry guns to school each day. And we are constantly hearing reports of barbarian activity in the news. One recently came out of Chicago, where five-year-old Eric Morse was pushed to his death out of the 14th floor window of an abandoned apartment building by 10 and 11-year-olds because he refused to steal candy. Time Magazine reports 2 million cases of child abuse a year. A new teenage drug addict is added in our country every 10 seconds. There are 6,000 new teenage alcoholics every day. 20 American teens die on the highway in alcohol-related accidents every day. Every 45 seconds, another teenage girl becomes pregnant. Our country fosters over one million teenage runaways. Every year, one million children under the age of 18 watch their parents divorce. When we were in Gulf Shores, I saw billboards explaining how easy it was. It just said, call 1-800-DIVORCE. In 1992, we reached a milestone of sorts. Twelve-year-old Gregory Kingsley of Orlando, Florida, successfully sued to divorce himself from his mother. Now, that's a nice precedent. When you don't like what your parents are telling you to do, you just file for divorce. And to further distort the whole picture, Congress is about to vote on a law that, if passed, would give homosexuals the right to marry. In fact, things are getting so barbaric that it seems that everyone is sitting up and taking notice. Dan Quayle was initially ridiculed for his comments about Murphy Brown and her choice to have a child as a single mother. Since then, the consensus seems to be that he was right. And four short years later, we hear every candidate preaching family values. Now, while that's a nice campaign slogan, and while it may translate into votes, we need to understand that Washington can't fix the family, because they really don't know how. In fact, if you listen carefully to what politicians are saying when they talk about family values, much of it revolves around economics, as if to say, if we can raise the standard of living, values will ensue. But the problem we're seeing in the family is not an economic problem. In fact, you know when the crime rate was the least in the last 75 years? It was during the Depression, when everyone had a lower standard of living. Money does not bring morality. And when politicians are not throwing money at the problem, they're coming up with ideas like midnight basketball and citywide curfews for teenagers trying to become surrogate parents. We need to understand that the problem can't be fixed from outside the home. It has to be fixed from inside the home. And the problem is not an economic problem. The problem is a spiritual problem. Fortunately, many are coming to understand that today. And there are a lot of resources to help. We've got seminars and books and tapes and magazine articles devoted to straightening out the family. And while those resources are great, it's interesting to me how simple the Lord makes something that we try to make so complex. Because he lays out the solution for the family in four verses, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. And essentially he says two things. Children, obey your parents. And parents, don't overdo the right of authority. Don't provoke them to anger. And of course, if you've been with us in the study through Ephesians, you know that these verses flow out of chapter 5 and verse 18, where we're given the command, be filled with the Spirit. The results being, verse 19, that you're speaking and singing and making melody among yourselves to the Lord. Verse 20, you're giving thanks always for all things. And verse 21, you are submitting mutually to one another. And then to illustrate that, he says, verse 22, wives submit to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, you submit to your wives by lovingly laying down your lives. Children, chapter 6, verse 1, you submit to your parents by obeying. And parents, you submit to your children by verse 4 by not provoking them to wrath now that tells me something when we come to chapter 6 verse 1 it tells me that children are expected to be under the control of the spirit of God you say well I'm just a kid I'm just a teenager well if you are, under, if you are old enough to understand the way of salvation and old enough to commit your life to Jesus Christ then you are old enough to walk under the control of the spirit of God Nowhere in Scripture does it say you've got to wait until you're 21 or 25 or 30 to get serious with God. In fact, quite the contrary. God called Samuel and made him his prophet while he was still a child. He made Josiah king of Israel when he was 8 years old, and it says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. David started when he was young. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, when he volunteered to go up against Goliath, Saul looked at him and said... You're just a youth. And David said in verse 37 of that chapter, the Lord delivered me from the lion and the bear. Saul said, you're a youth. David said, I've already got a testimony of God's faithfulness in my life. I've already been walking with Him. Esther was a young teenage girl who God used to prevent the extinction of the Jews. Daniel was a youth when he made a stand for God before the king of Babylon. Timothy started out at the feet of his mother and his grandparents. In fact, he served God at such a young age that Paul had to say to him, don't let people look down on your youthfulness. And John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. So young people, don't say, someday. If you're a Christian, God expects you to be filled with the Spirit, and His command to you in that context is chapter 6, verse 1, obey your parents. Now the word children there is not the word for babies, it's the word that means offspring. And it means anyone who is in the home and under the control of their parents. It really includes anyone who has not observed the exhortation in chapter 5 and verse 31 to leave father and mother and start their own home. And so he's not talking here about just young children, he's talking about any children who are in the home. And his exhortation is to obey your parents. Now, that word obey comes from two Greek words. One is akouo, from which we get acoustics, which means to listen. The other is hupo, which means under. What this word means is that children, you are to get under the authority of your parents and listen to what they have to say. Now, the United, States, the United Nations says that we need to liberate children, we need to give them their rights and let them choose their own moral boundaries. But the scriptures don't say we need to liberate children. The scriptures say children need to get under the authority of their parents and listen and obey. You say, well, what do I need to obey? Well, Paul answers that in Colossians 3.20. He says, children, be obedient to your parents in all things. That's pretty easy to remember. Everything. Now... Of course, there are exceptions to that. If your parents tell you to do something that God forbids, then you would have to say with Paul and, or Peter and John in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than man. And there are times when that may happen. Jesus anticipated that in Luke chapter 12, when he said because of the gospel, there will be division between... Fathers and sons, sons and fathers, mothers and daughters, daughters and mothers. There may be a time when that happens. It happens oftentimes in a Jewish home. When a young person comes to Christ, their parents insist that they denounce Christ. And if they don't, they oftentimes actually have a funeral for their child because of their view of the severity of that. But that doesn't mean when your parent says, I want you to mow the lawn, you say, well, I was reading the Bible this morning. You know, the Lord told me I need to go to the ball field. If you were listening to the Lord, He said, mow the yard. Because He says, obey your parents. Now, one of the questions that kids most often ask is, why? And you say, take out the trash. Why? Bring in some firewood. Why? Be home at eleven. Why? Obviously, Paul understood children because what he does here is he gives this exhortation, children, obey your parents, and then he understands that they're probably going to say, why? So he gives four reasons why you ought to obey your parents. The first one is, in the Lord. See that? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That means you show your obedience to the Lord By obeying your parents. And when you disobey your parents, you are disobeying the Lord. Now, I don't have to tell you that your parents aren't perfect. They make mistakes. I hope that they will be the first to admit that. But the Lord doesn't say you obey them because they're always right. He doesn't say you obey them because they're old-fashioned or they're not old-fashioned because they're too strict or they're too lenient. He says you're to obey them because Jesus wants you to. That's reason number one. And as parents, we need to be teaching that to our children at a very early age. Sometimes you get frustrated with all the whys and you say something like, Because I said so. Well, that's probably not the best reason. We ought to be saying, because God made me your parent, and you're supposed to obey me because he said so. I, I didn't really volunteer for this job, but I'm your parent, and I'm doing the best I can, and I make a lot of mistakes, but God has called you to obey me as I'm learning how to do it better. That's reason number one. Reason number two is at the end of verse one, he says... For this is right. Now I like that reason. Paul says, you want a reason for obeying your parents? He just says, it's right. Now, that's not a statement we hear very often today because all absolutes have gone from our society. You don't hear people stand up and say, this is right, that is wrong. And you may be saying today, well, where are the psychologists? Who did the case studies? Give me some statistics. Paul just says, it's right. You see, if God says something, it's right. Psalm 19.8 says, The laws of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And young person, you want to do what's right? Obey your parents. Third reason. The beginning of verse 2. Paul says, Honor your father and mother. And what he's doing here is he's quoting from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 12. Paul is saying, this is not a new idea that I'm bringing here. I'm telling you something that goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses on two tablets of stone. It's presumed that probably the first four commandments were on the first tablet and the last six were on the second tablet. The reason for that is if you read the Ten Commandments, the first four are much more wordy than the last six. The last six include commandments like, thou shalt not steal. That's really short. It also makes a nice breakdown because the first four have to do with our relation to God. The last six have to do with our relationships with men. And that really fits well with Jesus' answer in Matthew chapter 22. Remember when the man came to him and said, what's the greatest commandment of all? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. That's tablet number one. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's tablet number two. He just summarizes the law in those two statements. Love the Lord, love your neighbor. It encompasses all that's stated there. So Paul quotes here from the first law of that second tablet. And what's interesting is that this statement, children honor your parents, is the only statement in the Ten Commandments pertaining to relationships within the home. And the reason for that is because it's enough. If this is obeyed, then the home will function properly. And the first commandment that God gives concerning human relationships is this one. Children, obey your parents. And I think the reason for that is because this is not only the key to relationships within the home, it is key to relationships of all kinds. You see, the person who grows up with a sense of obedience and discipline and respect toward his or her parents will be an individual who can make any other kind of relationship work in any other arena of life. This is foundational stuff. That explains why after giving the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, in Exodus chapter 21, the Lord says in verse 15, He who strikes his father or mother shall surely be put to death. And then in verse 17, He who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. You physically abuse or verbally abuse your parent under God's law, and you're put to death the Menendez brothers wouldn't have gotten a second trial under the Old Testament law. And it explains how you did it. I mean, you just took your son and took him to the the elders of the city and you said, he badmouthed me, and they stoned him right on the spot. See, God was serious about that. You say, well, why is God so strict? I think the reason is because God knows that if you don't get this relationship worked out, With your parents, you're going to be a destructive force in society. If you can't get the relationship right with your parents, you're not going to get any other relationship right. Look at a verse with me. Look at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 11. The writer of Proverbs really bears this out. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 11. He says, There is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. There is a kind, oh how lofty are his eyes and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. There is a kind of man whose teeth are like swords and his jaw teeth like knives to devour the afflicted from the earth and the needy from among men. You see the progression there? He says in verse 11, there's a kind of man who curses his father, does not bless his mother. Verse 12, he's self-righteous. Verse 13, he's arrogant. Verse 14, he devours the needy of the world. He never learned how to relate to his parents. What does he do? He devours other people. And we see the result of that in verse 17. He says, the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. You want to learn how to have real, lasting relationships with people, it's got to start in the home. It's got to start with that relationship of submission and obedience to your parents. And that's why I would recommend you young people, when you look for a prospective mate, the first thing you need to look at is how does he or she relate to their parents. You get in a relationship with somebody who is rebelling against their parents, who can't get along with their parents, and I guarantee you, they will not get along with you either. Because that is a foundational relationship that has to be secured before other relationships can come out of it. And so Paul gives his reason. He goes back to the Ten Commandments and he says, Honor your father and mother. And he also shows us it's the first commandment of the relational commandments because it's foundational to relationships. Which brings us to the fourth reason he gives, which is the end of verse 2 and verse 3. He says, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. The fifth commandment contains a promise that it will be well with you, that's quality of life, and that you may live long, that's quantity of life. Now, this commandment and this promise was originally given to Israel, to whom God gave many temporal promises. But Paul relates it to us, and to do so, he actually changes the wording. If you go back and read Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12, there he says that you may live long on the land. Talking about the promised land. Paul changes the word land to earth because he's making the same promise applicable to us today. If you obey your parents, you will live well and long. Now that doesn't mean that someone who dies young was disobedient to his parents. What Paul is simply doing here is he's giving us a principle. And that is that when children obey their parents in the Lord, they escape a great deal of sin and danger that could otherwise shorten their lives. And so he's saying, if you will obey your parents, you will stay out of those things and you will live longer. But life is not only measured by its quantity, it's measured by its quality. And so he says, also you will live well. A family where children and parents live in mutual love and submission has a rich, God-given harmony and satisfaction that other families don't know. And this promise really applies to all of God's commandments because sin always robs and obedience always enriches us. So there are the reasons Paul gives. Now, before we go on, I want you to go back to that word honor in verse 2 because it really has two meanings. The first meaning is to esteem, to respect, to regard, highlight. It's a word that's used in relationship to believers and God. We are to honor God. We are to speak well of Him. We are to reverence Him. We are to respect Him. That's the same attitude you are to have to your parents. Which means that you don't refer to your dad as my old man. There is respect there. You see, the word obey in verse 1 is the action. The word honor in verse 2 is the attitude. God's not only concerned that you do what your parents say, He's concerned about the attitude with which you do it. So you obey your parents by fulfilling what they say, but also by doing it with an attitude of respect. Because if you do it with grumbling and resentment and bitterness, you're not obeying the Lord. But there's a second meaning behind this word honor. It's used in Scripture to speak of financial support. And to show you that, I want you to go in your Bible to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 And Jesus is speaking here to the Pharisees, and I want to pick up the conversation in verse 9. Jesus said, You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say... If a man says to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God. Now, I don't want to go into great detail in this passage to explain it, but what he's saying is, the word of God says, honor your father and mother. What they did was, uh, the Pharisees came in and kind of did some estate planning. They said, i tell you what we'll do. You donate everything you've got to the temple and until you die, you can use it for yourself, but you can't use it for anybody else. And they were trying to get the money out of people. And so what Jesus says is, the Word of God says, honor your father and mother, but you say, sorry, mom and dad, I've already committed that money to the temple. I can't give it to you. And Jesus says, you're invalidating the Word of God because implied in honor is the idea that you actually give financial support to your parents. Which tells me, when we come back to Ephesians chapter 6, that honor is not something I simply do while I'm in the home. It's something I do after I have left my parents' home. I respect them until the day they die. And not only that, but when they get into a position where they need financial aid, I should be supplying that for them. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has estimated that the average family spends $132,000 to get one child from birth to age 18. And then you've got to pay for their college. $132,000 to get them from birth to 18. Your parents have invested a lot in you. They spend between five dollars and $10,000 a year on you. And so when the time comes... When they need something from you, you should count it a privilege to take that opportunity to do so. In 1992, 60-year-old Veronica Godwin sued her grown children for support in St. Catharines, Ontario, and won. courts ruled she deserved it and she was awarded $1,000 a month. Now, in that kind of situation, nobody really wins. Children ought to be anxious to support their aging parents because that's all a part of what honoring them is. So you're caring for your parents while you're raising your children so that when you are older, they will be able to care for you. That's God's program. And that's what it means to honor your parents. And of course, the thing that should make this exhortation to children easier is verse 4. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Just as wives are to be submissive to husbands who are lovingly laying down their lives, children should obey parents who are not provoking them to anger. You say, well, how do I keep from provoking my children to anger? Well, we talked about that extensively on Father's Day. But I just want to add some thoughts as we close this morning. Uh, In his book, How to Be a Hero to Your Kids, Josh McDowell gives what he calls the six A's of positive parenting. And I want to share that outline with you this morning because it provides a framework for applying authority in an encouraging way. Here are the six A's. Number one, acceptance. Acceptance. This is the foundation of your relationship with your children. You are to be communicating to your children in such a way that they know that no matter what they might do or say, no matter how badly they might fail or foul up, that mom and dad love them anyway. It's unconditional, it's acceptance. I love you, period. See, that's the attitude of the prodigal's father. He's standing at the gate longing for his son with open arms of acceptance. No matter what you've done, I accept you. That's number one. Number two is appreciation. Rather than always finding the mistakes that my children are doing and correcting them, I need to be finding those things that they're doing well and encouraging them. Parents need to be complimenting and praising and applauding their children third is affection embrace your kids touch your kids hug your kids the hug of your child speaks volumes to them in in terms of warmth and love and sometimes that's easier to do when our kids are little because they always want a hug and when they get older and act like they don't they probably need it more and you, you may say, well, I grew up in a home where we didn't touch a whole lot. Well, forget about where you grew up and hug your kids. Show them affection. If you don't like to hug, wrestle with them once in a while. Fourth is availability. And this is crucial because if you're not around, you're going to have trouble demonstrating acceptance and appreciation and affection to your kids. got to be available. And a lot of busy parents today try to justify that by saying, well, I give my kid quality time. I'm convinced that quality time never happens unless you give quantity time. When you give your kids quantity time, then those quality moments just happen. You can't plan it. You can't sit down with your child and say, let's have five quality moments before I rush off to another meeting. It doesn't happen that way. Sometimes I go home thinking about how I'm going to relate to my kids and I get there and they're just sort of in, a, in, a, in another zone for me and they're not ready for me so you know, I, I've got to figure out how to get involved in their life to get one of those moments with them availability love is spelled T-I-M-E fifth is accountability which simply means the standards that you apply to the home you have to live by So if you're going to set up house rules in terms of morality, you've got to be accountable to those as well. And you've got to allow your kids to hold you accountable to those things. Which means that you're not just a legislator, you're a role model. Which we said last time, you leave with your kids what you live out in your life. And then sixthly is authority. As a parent, there are times when you have to draw the line. There are times when you have to administer discipline. But if you keep it in this context, it will be received. If your kids know that you accept them and appreciate them and you're affectionate with them and you're available and you're accountable, they'll heed your authority. Josh McDowell said something that impacted me in his book. He said... Rules without relationships lead to rebellion. How do I provoke my children to wrath when I give them authority without giving them myself? When I lay down rules without first building a relationship with them? Well, that completes our series turning houses into homes he's spoken to wives about being submissive he's spoken to husbands about sacrificially laying down our lives he's spoken to children about obeying your parents he's spoken to parents about lovingly applying authority in the home and just in closing this morning let me ask you how's your family As we've talked about some of these things, how do you measure up to the commandments that God has laid down for you? And if you find some cracks, which I'm sure we all do, let me encourage you that it's never too late to change. The greatest accomplishment of Alfred Nobel was that he had created dynamite when his brother Ludwig died. The newspaper mistakenly thought that it was Alfred that had died, and so it published his obituary. He read it with great alarm, realizing that his greatest accomplishment in life was that he had created the most destructive thing on the face of the planet. And having read his obituary, he went on to create the Nobel Peace Prize. Maybe it's a good opportunity to, at least in your mind, write your own obituary about how you've done in your family and you may be alarmed to see that you have created more dynamite than peace but it's never too late to surrender your life to the Prince of Peace and allow him to come in and change you individually and change your family as well why not let the one who designed the family run yours That all starts when you let him run your life.